Hello everyone and welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week it's been every which way but loose and uh, my good friend Baz is here as my as well um, Clyde I guess in this in this particular <laughs> metaphor I'm constructing on the fly. <laughs> no, I just want to leave you hanging with that metaphor let's see how far we can go mate I mean you know fill 20 minutes of that metaphor and I think we've got podcasting gold. Well I could, probably could I'll start going about the Black Widows and stuff but like, let's not do that. Why I mentioned Every which way, of course, is because there's a, an excellent Kickstarter on the minutes, which is the silver anniversary edition of uh, the Everway Mythic role-playing game. And who better to tell us about that than Mr. Jonathan Tweet? How are you doing, Jonathan? Oh, real good, thanks. Happy to be here again. It's a delight to have you back on again. So let, let's start with that then, shall we? Everway, a game that uh, Baz and I were reminiscing about that we played Probably circa 1994 or something like that. It was certainly yeah. the early, early 90s. Yeah. Uh, but Baz was opening up his old box and finding my old character sheet from it, which was a, a rare treat. It was like an Indiana Jones moment. He's there waving it oh, about for all yeah. of us. So um, there's a, a new treatment that's come out and on Kickstarter currently at time recording and probably at publishing as well, I would imagine. Uh, so what can you tell us about it? Yeah, so uh, it's really exciting after 25 years to see the game coming around again. Um, it was uh, canceled as soon as it came out, almost back in 1995. Wizards went through a big upheaval and laid off lots of people and cut lots of lines and uh, cut their role-playing lines and whatever. So it was caught up in that. And then it landed um, uh, with a couple of sort of super fans who have kept the dream alive all these years. And so that's uh, Richard Tums Rowan and uh, Jesse McGatha. And they... Uh, finally have sort of everything in a row to uh, release a new edition. And uh, so it's really gratifying for me to see sort of the the dream I had for a game line back in 1995 uh, given another chance. And I really think given a better chance, um, this new version is it's, – it's just as um, – sort of freeform and out there as it was in 1995, but in some ways the game community has caught up. And so what used to be kind of too freeform and, um, you know, too out there in terms of game design is now uh, much more established as a, a style of play that's based on improvisation and narrative and not on equipment lists or encumbrance charts and that sort of thing. Um, and then these two guys uh, at the Everway Company have really given the game um, a much more solid presentation. So they're big, full-size hardback books instead of the kind of weird little um, off-size books that the 1995 version were in. And the interior is all color because it's cheap to print in color now the way it wasn't back in that day. Um, and they have access to all the imagery from the expansions uh, that we did. And so... Um, the, the game has twice as much art now as it had when um, the original released. And so it's, and, and there's been a couple of touch ups on the uh, mechanics to sort of fix some things that were hanging loose. Uh, and so overall, it's just a, um, a more solid treatment for a really worthy game that kind of didn't, didn't get a good chance at the gate uh, 25 years ago. And for me, I get to hear everyone's stories from uh, what they think of Everway. People have had 25 years to pick it up and read it and think about it and riff on it. And um, I've heard from so many people who say it changed the way that they play role-playing games or it changed the way they design role-playing games. And, um, and so that's also really heartening just to see uh, what a big effect the game had on so many people over the years. Awesome. So probably just for some of our listeners who haven't had a chance to play it or don't know what Everway is, um, could you sort of take a step back perhaps and, and tell us a little bit about the sort of innovative, at the time certainly, uh, mechanics of things? Because it wasn't about rolling D20s and trying to get a target number or something. It was something completely different, right? That, that's exactly right. So the, um, the idea was we wanted to be able to reach people for whom the um, standard role-playing games were just sort of too... Um, math heavy to, uh, you know, rules heavy. And, um, it made it too difficult to just get into the spirit of telling a story. And so in some ways, the heart of the game is character creation where you pick 
uh, five images from the fantasy images that we provide, and you use those to inspire your concept for a character. And then there's a, a pretty light system for uh, putting stats behind that background so that you have uh, numbers you can use to interact with the world, but you don't have, you know, synergy bonuses or, uh, you know, any anything. And you don't have derived stats where you're um, using one number to come up with another number or anything like that. It's very straightforward. And, um, and the idea there is that if you tell people that you can make up whatever they want, a lot of people kind of balk at that because they don't know where to begin. But if you give people images and then tell them use whatever images you want to create a character, well, they're even people who aren't gamers are capable of doing that because the imagery pulls things out of their unconscious and um, it, it can be kind of effortless. And people feel as though they're discovering a story in the pictures rather than inventing something um, themselves. And so the um, the idea there is you can sort of create a character from any sort of background. And so the art has uh, images of people from, you know, all over the world, cultures all over the world, people that look like all kinds of things. And, um, and then to make that work, the setting is, uh, you know, the thousand spheres, uh, all these worlds, kind of alternate earths that the uh, characters can travel among through uh, gates or portals. And so if you, based on your imagery, you've created someone from the frozen tundra and someone else has created someone from the jungle, well, they, they could be together in a party because they've traveled through these gates to come to wherever the adventure happens to be. Um, and there's a grand city of Everway sort of in the center of the universe, at the center of all these gates and, and um, pathways. Uh, but you never really need to go there. Like, it's mostly about you, what you make up. And the idea that you can move from place to place really easily means that the Game Master can kind of make up whatever realm they want for the next adventure and say that just happens to be the place that you end up next. And we had a lot of uh, fun with people sort of stepping into the Game Master role for one session, and they could create their realm with their sort of internal logic or their the culture that they wanted to explore. And whatever they did, it fit in with the rest because uh, it's, it's all this um, kind of a multiverse that you can uh, travel from one place to another and, and, you know, encounter whatever that game master has in mind. And so it's that, it's that free flowing improvisation that uh, I think is really the heart of it. And then the, the backstory of the whole universe sort of supports that. Like, how do you how do you allow players to create whatever character they want, and how do you allow game masters to create whatever scenarios they want? Well, jumping from world to world is clearly the way to do it. <laughs> For sure. So, do, do you find? I guess one of the things that I found, I'm trying to, you know, obviously go back 25 years ago, whenever it was when we were playing this game. But one of the curious elements I found about the game was. Um, having pictures to uh, determine things, but uh, Baz and I, for example, would have completely different ideas about what that picture represented. So that, so that's like it's an interesting aspect, I guess. Uh, like, how do you calm people's fears a little bit? I can, I can see some people, like you know, you, you read on forums where they talk about how to interpret a rule, even when it's written down in black and white. They can get quite nervous about that. So, you know, how would you assuage people's worries that? Interpreting a picture is quite difficult and obviously open to a lot greater interpretation than perhaps a strict um, war game rule would be or something like that. So for the so the background, the vision cards or the images that people use for creating their characters, the, the idea is no two people use the same image for their background and so each person's going to interpret it their way and they are sort of the boss of how they interpret their own images. But the other images that people interpret are on the uh, the fortune cards so instead of using dice, there's a sort of a custom tarot-style deck called the Fortune Deck with uh, 36 cards in it, and those cards represent sort of um, uh, iconic uh, concepts or conflicts. Uh, so you have law versus order or corruption versus recovery uh, and indulgence versus moderation and um, you know physical success versus physical failure and that, those sorts of things. And then when you have a conflict to resolve, instead of uh, rolling the dice, you, you sort of look at the numbers involved, like what are the scores of the character versus the difficulty 
of what they're trying to do and how likely are they to succeed and what are, you know, just in, in terms of what the characters are bringing to the table, what are the likely results? And then once that's established, you draw one of these fortune cards and then that provides the uh, randomizing effect maybe up or down or sideways depending on, on what's on the card. And I make a little ritual of it. I have the player cut the deck and draw their own card because the the idea here is that in a story, you resolve conflicts pretty quickly. In a war game, you, you play a war game for hours and hours and it's all just resolving the conflict of who wins the Battle of the Bulge or whatever. But in a story, you you want the conflict to be resolved so you can go on to the next beat in the story. And so in a turn of the fortune deck, you draw one of these cards, you can resolve a, a quick fight with that uh, with that card. If it's a drawn-out fight, maybe it'll take two cards, one for, for sort of the the, the setup or the, the initial clash, and then the other one is sort of how it concludes. Um, but the idea here is that you're resolving conflicts really, really quickly, and so you can afford to put a little bit of time into setting up, like, what's going to happen when we draw these cards? And then each one has, um, each one that's positive has a negative meaning if it's pulled upside down, and each one that's negative has a positive meaning, and, and so on. And so um, you can kind of sort of get, you know, we, we expected you to do well, you got a middling card, so you do well in this conflict. Maybe there's something on the card that uh, gives you an idea for something unusual to happen. Um, or maybe it's exactly the right card that you need in order to succeed at this particular task, right? Like in one of my campaigns, um, a magician who could channel uh, life energy for destruction tried to use his own, tried to like flip his own power and use it for the first time to heal someone instead of destroy them. And the card that he drew was the uh, Mother Nature card that, um, you know, had life force as its meaning. It's like, well, that is exactly the card you would want if you as a magician wanted to, right, reverse your polarities. And uh, and so when that happens, of course, everyone gets a shiver down their spine and it's like this weird uh, weird experience, but it's a, um, it happens more often than you might think. It, it, for more mechanical things, uh, the cards are related to, very often to uh, elements. So the Cockatrice card is related to earth and water, the, and and um, and so and those elements are also the stats for your character. So earth is sort of how tough you are. Water is how uh, fluid and sensitive you are. Fire is your uh, energy, and uh, air is intellect. And so, if you're trying an intellectual task, like you're trying to sort through a library of scrolls to find the right scroll with the information that you need, then uh, drawing an, uh, an air card is great. If you draw the air card that's reversed, it's not, not great at all. Um, and when, when I originally released the game, I was maybe trying to be too cute, and the name appeared on the card, but there was no other information you had to sort of, it's sort of like a tarot card, like you have to remember that death means change rather than actually literally death or whatever. And one of the ways that the Everway Company has improved things is, uh, in addition to the title, the meanings of the card are there and uh, any elemental or planetary uh, correspondences are there. So it really helps it, um, uh, helps you use the card sort of mechanically. Though, I, I mean, I will say there's no way around it. It's a it's based on symbols and uh, imagination rather than uh, numbers and probabilities. And so some amount of trust in the Game Master is necessary and some, some amount of, like, figuring out ahead of time what does it mean for you to be in this conflict uh, so that when things go well or poorly, no one's really surprised. Sure. So it's, it's kind of using... Um like I suppose stake setting and things like that and other things I guess like you say at the time were probably newish concepts but uh, now we're probably well established due to say, the last certainly the last sort of 10 years things like conflict resolution setting stakes uh, interpreting results rather than having strict you know strict rules yeah, or tables right. yeah really nice to see like in 1995 I couldn't really tell whether 
Neverway was ahead of it, the ahead of its time, or just off on some weird tangent, <laughs> right? And I sort of hoped that it was ahead of its time, uh, and that has been just been proved out, sort of decade after decade, as game designers have done more freeform games and uh, more narrative-oriented games. I think that's how you tell us that you look, you wait twenty years and see if it was ahead of its time or not. <laughs> 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 Yeah, you know, everyone had a big effect, had a big effect on a lot of the game designers who have done the more narrative-oriented games. And so some in some ways, you know, Everway inspired them to teach the gaming public how to appreciate Everway, and now Everway is back. And um, you know, maybe no longer ahead of its time, maybe now solidly part of the the field of uh freeform narrative role-playing games. Yeah, people might think it's trad as all hell now, and it's just, <laughs> it might seem old fashioned. Who knows? <laughs> it's definitely worth checking out, though. Yeah. Um, with the art perspective, which is obviously, I think, one of the unique selling points of Everway, art's fundamental to role playing games and always has been, but no, none more so than Everway. Do you remember writing, Jonathan? I'll put you on the spot here. Do you remember writing in Over the Edge, first edition? One of the things that blew my mind about that was you insisted that people draw their characters. Oh, I remember yeah. that. Oh, I totally remember that. You, I remember yeah. you, you wrote a line about it did something to people's synapses. And I didn't know what a synapse was then. <laughs> it, it provides a, a meta-neural connection between the motor and perceptual portions of your brain, allowing you to unlock parts of your unconscious or something. Exactly. Hand exactly. Gobbledy. Right. Yeah, which is half true. Like, I think it's not totally false. <laughs> <laughs> I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. I, I repeated it as, as my own words to people to try and sound clever for many years. Yeah. But I, but fundamentally, I ran into loads of objections of people saying, I can't draw from very sensible people who, who make good salaries would just tell me that this was an impossible task. Yeah. Uh, but whenever they did it, and we've seen it in other games too, like Monsters and other childish things, that act of having an image really does cement things in your mind. And, and the, the cards in every way act like a fantastic shortcut to imagination. I think they're an absolute delight. I use them in English lessons all the time to teach children English because that that ability to move your hand and then have something fire behind your eyes is incredible. And you, you, It's more than you would get from just a blank sheet of paper or some dice rolls, realistically. Yeah, I, thanks for bringing that up. I, that, you're right. That I have been coming back to this issue of art and imagination uh, from uh, different directions. And... Yeah, well, we came up with a new version of um, Over the Edge uh, back in 2019, and I made my playtesters draw their <laughs> characters, and they complained, um, uh, but I made them, made them do it. And, you know, it really did, I don't know, help me think of their characters and get a sense for the spirit of their characters. And I specified that you don't have to show the hands. I think that's, that's an helpful. important yeah, point yeah, for yeah. people. Who, yeah, I can't draw hands, and so you know, if if you draw a character with their hands behind their back, that's fine. Or they just have like empty stumps at the ends of their uh, wrists, that's also fine. But yeah, I think that that's really important. And I I know a fellow who got in contact with me in the last couple of years, and he said, uh, like the people you report, he did not want to draw his character when he was told that that was necessary, and he did anyway. And then he became an artist, and now wow. he does. Yeah, exactly. So now he does um, role playing art and maps, huh. and that's because uh, I forced him to. I forced his game master to force him to actually draw their character. So yeah, I think that's a big deal. And you're right that the images in Everway are a way of sort of making that even more painless. Like you don't have to, you don't have to badger somebody into making up images from the. Uh, or make up a story from the images that they pick up. And that really was sort of the, um, an inspiration for me was when I put created over the edge, that's a modern day game, uh, but it's also sort of, you can create any kind of character you want. Yeah. And it also has a weird setting kind of where anything goes. And that's also in order to allow people to be creative and do what they want to do and not have to look in the rule book before they create their character. But um but I, I remember someone came up at a convention. I was trying to tell them about my cool game Over the Edge. It was at that point, it was just a home campaign, and I, you know, I said you can make up whatever character they want, and they walked away. 
I thought, well, how, why would anyone not want to make up whatever character they want? <laughs> right. And, and I, and then I realized, well, not, not everyone kind of has the personality that I have where I'll, I, I feel free to make up stuff in front of other people. And I don't care what they think. Um, so the, the Everway cards were kind of my, my solution to that problem. And when you talk about uh, teaching English, you know, it was my, you know, when I was 10, my English teacher had us make up stories based on images. Yeah. Yep. I just recycled that into a role playing game back in 1995. Yeah. One of the, I remember, you might have run it actually, it was an over the edge game. We had uh, a good friend, Jules, playing, and one of his character's abilities was that he could disguise himself as anything he wanted. So when he came to join his character, he just drew a lampshade because he was in disguise. <laughs> it, was like, it was a neat way of getting around the, having to draw your character. It just, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's a lawyer now. No surprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Found a way around it. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think it's, it is, it's a recognized teaching technique just to bore everybody yeah. for a minute. You know, it's... Um, I use it with eight and nine year old kids and we do a thing where we're just trying to get them to understand language and be creative and, you know, use, choose words, not just use them. And just by putting up a single image, you know, it's a truism about it says a thousand words, but an image will get me 30 different ideas in 10 seconds. If I, if I put up a paragraph of, of text, it will give me probably a very similar idea to that paragraph of text and it will take 15 minutes. So it's incredible the power that color will have, the, the power that, um, that you know, what some people might call abstract art is it will have an incredibly powerful effect on the imagination. But but the weird thing is, is getting kids to understand that they're responsible for their own imaginations as well. They feel like it's somehow cheating, and that's a really bizarre way of looking at it. I think, but it's it happened enough to me for me to realise that this yeah. is true. So I wonder if Jonathan, you've had an experience of of people people not believing in their own characters i don't quite know how to put it but do they feel it's cheating if they've just got five images and they've come up with some ideas do they not think it's proper in some way i mean i i've i've had people sort of balk at like really i can make up whatever like i can you know i can say my character does this cool thing it's like yeah we want your character to do this cool mm. thing like that's that's good i mean i think more often i have the opposite effect where people feel as though not that it's cheating but that somehow this process is getting into some deep part of their unconscious and uh, surfacing some part of their you know their inner life mm. right like I had a friend of mine who, who you know was telling his story improvising a story about his character about how he had gone on this important uh, test, this big spiritual vision test that he went on, and he failed, and he got kicked out of his village. And I'm like, and then he looked at me and he said, "This is just psychoanalysis. You're you're just you're 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 trying to get at my head, right?" And it's like, well, you know, you it does come out of you, right? Like that's someone else could look at that same picture and they would not tell that story. They would tell a story about succeeding at this powerful vision test or whatever instead of failing right um and so uh yeah i i have found people really um really see something powerful in it or even just be delighted that they can make up a story right like someone who hadn't played role-playing games before when we were playtesting early on in wizards you know made up her story and it was like i she was uh, astounded. Like, when's the last time that she had made up a story? Well, maybe when she was a kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Absolutely. We don't do enough colouring in, sketching, noodling, yeah. playing with stuff. That's right. We just don't do it anymore. But we all used to be able to do it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, everyone did that, right, as a kid. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad that you're focusing on art because, you know, there's been a – tension in role-playing games between like, are you problem solving or are you improvising a narrative? And um, you can do both. Uh, and some of the games are better than, than others at one or the other or lean one way or the other. Um, but my, you know, until I kind of hit on art as a inspiration, I felt like I was just telling people, use your imagination. Well, you know, that's easier said than done. Right. And mm. and so with art, you, you don't have to say use your imagination. Right. You can say tell a story based on this art and you have to use your imagination to do it. But 
it it feels like you're drawing the story out of the imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It gives you something to do, doesn't it? I, I certainly came up against that when I was running over the edge, certainly in the early days, when I said you can be whatever you want to be. And like say, I, I can think of 10 characters immediately I want to be. But for some people, they were like, well, what, what, what sort of characters do we want? I was like, no, you can have literally anything. Like, yeah, but I mean... Yeah. You could just see people freeze, like because they've got too much freedom with no That's like right. no like seed to go from. Yeah, um, yeah. so that everywhere definitely helps with that in giving you some like inspiration to start with. I think related to this within the bounds of what you can see in front of you. That's right. One of the, one of the goals with Everway was to make the role playing more accessible. You know, not just to change the way role players play role playing games, but to offer an inroad for people who you know, don't want to look at a giant table of my, you know, my Lucerne hammer is plus two to hit versus chain mail or whatever. Like they don't want to look at that. That's not their idea of fun. And, and it has been successful, I think, in reaching new people. It's the only role-playing game that my late wife ever played with me. And part of that is that she could get right into it and not, uh, not have to learn a bunch of stuff and not feel like she was making um, tactical errors at the gaming table, like, oh, you should have used your five-foot step to get a flanking bonus. Well, you know, if you're playing that kind of game, that takes a, that's a kind of a learning curve. But if it's a narrative, right, like that never happens in a book where some character says to another, you should have flanked for a plus two bonus, right? It's not the level at which narrative happens. And so uh, backing up the whole mechanic system to the level at which narrative happens just makes it... Uh, more accessible to people who otherwise uh, wouldn't play a role-playing game. For sure. Is, is, is there, I think, I'm trying to work out if there's a space then for people to kind of do their own art. Is that something you consider be, could be included? Or is, there, is that probably a step too far? You know, I don't think that there's a place on the character sheet for you to draw your own character or whatever. And, and that, was, that was me trying to make the game not be... Uh, uh, intimidating to new players. And for Over the Edge, I'm okay intimidating the players. Right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a game about crazy weird stuff that, you know, alien bugs trying to take over your brain and stuff like that. And so I, I'm I'm okay if you get pushed out of your comfort zone in order to play Over the Edge. That's part of the genre. Uh, and But every way, uh, no, I made it much more sort of approachable and, and without without making anyone feel like their character's incomplete if they don't haven't drawn their character or anything like that. I mean, I would encourage everyone to draw their character, right? Like that's something you can do in any role-playing game is you can have everyone draw their character. And they make a, you can make a little stand-up out of paper with your character's name on it and their sketch. And um, it's it, boy, I, I, I sure recommend it. It makes a lot more sense in a game that's that's fun-hearted, that's light-hearted, because the character sketches aren't going to be great, right? Like if you're playing, you know, uh, I don't know, Knights, Black Agents about fighting vampires or whatever, maybe your your sketch might not be cool enough to fit the genre, mm-hmm. right? You won't, you won't look like Jason Bourne or anybody. Um, so maybe there are some games where it's less appropriate but um for a for for any game that's kind of open-ended and improvisational i think it's uh really good and then the the other thing that i invented for this it goes right along with the um images is the idea that part of creating your character is answering questions that other people at the table have for your for you and um on a strictly kind of mechanical level or a functional level this was to allow players to flesh things out so people understood each other's characters better. Like if you're playing a dwarf fighter in D&D and you've got a dwarven war axe or something, everyone knows, no one has to ask any questions about your character. They're pretty sure they know what to expect. Um, But if you've invented something based on some imagery, you might have ideas for that character that other people don't or, or parts of that character that aren't fleshed out at all. And so it, it, it helps to, um, uh, spend a little time developing that those characters, and we do it collaboratively, where players ask questions of each other about each other's characters, and those could be like, 
Like those can be totally in sort of in world. Like my characters have been observing your character while we travel through the uh, wastelands. What what does my character notice about your character in terms of how they spend their downtime? And that's all strictly you know in the world. But the other thing it can be totally omniscient observer of sort of like what's the thing your character doesn't understand about themselves? And so that's something that the character could never answer. But the but the player as an author can answer that about their own character, mm. uh, and then not only do we do that at the beginning of character creation, but we do that to sort of get into things at the beginning of any game session, remind each other who our characters are, and get the sort of the creative juices uh, flowing a little bit. And that's another. It's hardly a rule. It's like a technique that you can bring into any role playing game and have players ask each other questions about their characters. Yes, it's pretty standard in a in, well, pretty standard now. It wasn't standard then. You see in a lot of games these days. I think there are, there are some games that um, would really benefit from that kind of thing. We, we're all experienced with those really cool movies or novels or comic strips where you have that little bit of inter character chatter about seemingly nonsense issues, like you know, yep. um, Vincent yep. Vega talking about cheese royales is like you know the best thing in that yep. movie. But yep. you know yep. that, that's, that's right. not going to come out of like a traditional role playing game rule set you have to allow people to 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 lean into that downtime and ask questions of each other and so on and and everway is it's it's not just like a luxury is it it is an essential because otherwise you simply will not know who you're dealing with yeah that's right i was going to ask Jonathan. there's a, a lot of things have changed in 25 years a lot clearly <laughs> not least of which yeah. is um is your photo in the back of the first book which is which is fantastic, uh-huh. by the way. But anyway, moving on swiftly, it's uh, what I found really interesting looking back over this work again is um, you got you got some names in the credits, which which is brilliant to see, like typesetting by John Times, which yeah, uh, right of all people, right? yeah. <laughs> who can I get to do the typesetting? Let's get one of the best writing authors in the world. Uh, <laughs> Stoltz all over this like a rash, right? So that's that's another great piece of alumni. And then moving past the credits, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is in the early pages, it, it will say things like, if you have access to the internet, you might be able to use this thing called the World Wide Web to maybe enhance your game a little bit. We have this thing called Usenet. And I was, I was thinking to myself, my goodness me, this doesn't feel like an old game. But now, if you're picking up Everway, you're probably going to be playing online, given the current circumstances. Yeah. You've got your glorious map in that first edition box, which was now going to be the backdrop for everybody's you know, Roll20 sessions. You've got those images right. on cards, which would have been a manufacturing nightmare back in the day. But but now it, it's even more accessible than it was then. So technology is going to power every way going forward, surely. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Like, I mean, I, I used to cut pictures out of the newspaper, the physical paper newspaper that I got, <laughs> right? So that I could show them to people at the, like in an over-the-edge session. Like, you see this person, you see yeah. these dancers, right? You're looking down at down the street at this building. Where would you get those? Like, I had to physically cut them out of paper products, right? And uh, and so forever way it was, well, we're going to actually print up cards and hand them out to everybody because that's how you get images to people, right? And now it's it's cheap to print full-color interiors, and so uh, all the images from all the cards are uh, going to be in the books. And, uh, and like you said, it, people can go online and pick whatever images they want, right? Like there, there's so much there that, you know, imagery used to be dear back in the day. Like, I, you know, it was something I would collect and keep and, and yeah. So I, I think it's a great, the technology is really going to be great for, um, for Everway players. Yeah, we have a, we have a contract in the works that I think is signed, but I don't know if we're announcing it yet about uh, online play. And um, I know that uh, the Everway company wants to, um, I think they want to create a Discord bot that will uh, support f- using the Fortune deck and that sort of thing. The, the trick is, you know, all these artists get royalties. This is not work for hire. This mm. is royalties. Uh, and the Everway company put huge amounts of work into finding all these artists again and updating their contracts to take into account digital publishing, right? Which, well, it kind of didn't have that back in the day. 
Uh, Rich Rowan actually went to somebody's neighborhood in a nearby town in Washington. That's a couple hours away from us, actually. Found this guy's name on a voting record. So he knew what neighborhood he lived in, but not his address. And then (laughs) went to that neighborhood and knocked on people's doors. Hello, I'm looking for this guy. You know him. And found him. And then... and. and he, he finally remembered working on Everway. Wow. <laughs> so we were able to update his contract and everything. But that's just a huge amount of work to get, make all that happen. And so the, the technicalities of how you make that all work when you're doing online stuff, I'm going to leave to them. But, yes, the technology is definitely going to power Everway going forward. Cool. So to take you slightly at a tangent then, just thinking like you've got lots of different design you've mentioned and, and ways you approach games because obviously you worked on D&D 3rd Edition, you've done 13th Age as well as the games we've already mentioned. So just a kind of as an opinion piece, thinking at some point there's probably going to be a D&D 6 or something. Yeah. How, how different could you see that being? Do you, do you think that would still have to be pretty D&D? Or given all the sort of techniques and other things we've mentioned, do you think it could add more, I guess, what we would call indie elements back in the day, but like now probably more mainstay? Do you think it could divert from that old formula? You know, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, and it's, you know, I sure didn't know how to do D&D 5th edition, right? Like I, I, uh, and they did a great job with it, but, you know, it's, um, it isn't exactly the game that I would have done. And so probably it's a good idea. I didn't work on it or whatever. Right. Uh, um, because uh, <laughs> it's obviously it's been a huge success. Where are they going to go from here? It seems hard to ever, it seems hard for a company like wizards ever to allow the sorts of free form improvisation that Everway and over the edge rely on the 13th age as well. Right. 13th age is sort of like, uh, D20 meets narrative role-playing. Um, and so uh, the the issue there is that the, the corporation wants people to have a relatively predictable experience so they can predict what to sell them next, right? What miniatures to sell them, mm-hmm. what books to sell them, what supplements to sell them, and... Um, and so if you give people the kind of creative control that Everway gives to players, it's a lot harder to sell them stuff, right? Like you, if you invent your own campaign and it's inspired by images and symbols and your dreams or whatever, you're maybe not going to want the, you know, the, the big box set of some big adventure heist or whatever because that's not, that's not your campaign. Uh, I don't know how D&D would... Mm. Uh, would escape from that. They 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 sort of beholden to their shareholders to provide a a predictable experience to the players. Sure. Yeah. I, I guess a sort of supplemental question along that line is, like my view, I think probably Bas shares a little bit, is that the rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, that's right. So so the fact that D and D's big and getting bigger is is good for everybody, right? But that's right. Um, there's certainly a view out there on internet land, which has many views, that perhaps because D&D is so big, that's like pushing people out or something. But yeah. I think you probably agree. I don't know if there's anything to expand on there. You just agree. But, <laughs> but but this is what I've understood since when I started in the field in 1987 with Ars Magica. Is we kind of understood that like, Ars Magica is not going to have TV ads, right? That, that was our... Uh, high concept Middle Ages Wizards game with you know lots of crunch and numbers, but also lots of narrative and whatever is kind of the everything game uh, that that is designed for long term campaigns. You know, so it's like wow, it's a it's a sort of a gamer's game. Um, and when we weren't gonna you know get a starter set in Target or whatever, and so we needed. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons to be pulling people in, um, and then, uh, and then some number of those people realize that there's plenty of other games to play, and that's what the whole industry uh, relied on. And in fact, when when Dungeons and Dragons was tanking back in the late '90s, um, it was up. That was hard for everybody because if your game store isn't doing well because they're not selling 
um, D&D, then they also don't have money to buy your products either. Um, and so uh, I'm super happy that D&D is doing really, really well. I'm a little worried that it's going to become yesterday's news at some point, right? Like D&D was super big at the early 80s and then, um, you know, sort of became the thing that people make fun of or whatever. And, uh, but I don't know, it's such a great time to be a geek these days in terms of games and movies and TV series and whatever. It it, it does seem like there's been a sea change in in just how geeky ideas and geeky imagination is accepted in the mainstream. So like when D&D was super big in the 80s, it was kind of an outlier, right? Like it 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 came in with a sort of a counterculture approach, right? And so like bad kids would play D&D and then they would, you know, write about their D&D characters in their notebooks or whatever. And it was cool to be like against the establishment and the the you know, the grown-ups didn't like this D&D stuff or whatever, right? And, and well, now D&D is big because it is mainstream, because the imagination and fantasy are every day now rather than being counterculture. And so, I don't know, maybe there won't be the same backlash. Maybe it's just, uh, you know, a, a, a giant cultural shift that that will be relatively permanent. Well, we can we can hope. Concert. We can hope, right? Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I remember when, um, you know, uh, uh, back in the '90s, uh, one of the things that Richard Garfield would say at Wizards was the best thing that could happen for Magic would be for grown-ups to take to playing games, uh, playing you know serious games as uh, a pastime, like they did in Germany. Like Germany had a. Mm. a even back then, had a really strong sort of vibe of uh, playing quality uh, board games of one kind or another. And that's where Settlers of Catan came from and sort of opened the floodgates to like, wow, grown-ups can play, you know, serious games that aren't Panzer Blitz, right? Or uh, <laughs> the, the, um, yeah. the sort of really heavy simulationist games. They can be... Um, uh, they could be thoughtful, strategic games that aren't simulating war, as basically sure. comes down to. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he said that yeah, if if grownups would be playing games as pastimes, that would be amazing for Magic. And that's true. Now here we are, all these years later, and people are playing board games, right? And Magic is doing better than ever. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Just normal games. Yeah, that's right. The other the other thing that's been normalized, which is which would have shocked us all in nineteen ninety five, is the idea of people watching other people play role playing games on their TVs. Which is unbelievable. Bizarre in a way. But that must play into games like, you know, Everway with the idea of like a more visual and a more narrative game. Imagine streaming. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll be really excited to see it uh, uh, online because I think it's a natural for um, sort of the visuals that you don't necessarily get with other uh, role playing games and, and sort of centering that, right? Like, mm. how interesting is it to watch a D20 role? Well, yeah. But like drawing a card from the fortune deck is kind of cool. It's kind it's of basically good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it plays fast, and uh, it's sort of word oriented rather than number oriented. So, yeah, I, I think it should do great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'd watch that. <laughs> the other game you mentioned there, which while we talk about our old game is going to get resurrected. He's always Magicka, I guess. So Magicka, how you want to pronounce it. But is that something that might see another treatment at some point? Because I think amongst the old Grognoids, certainly, there's, a, there's an old fondness for it still. There, there really is. It, that's a game that just has legs like you wouldn't believe, right? Like it, it was designed for long-term play, like long-term campaign play. And I think that that um, 
has rewarded the people who have invested in it and and they become really committed to it and um and so uh I, like if i could think of something really great to do with it i would it's i mean it's a really solid game as it is right like it hard for me to imagine um improving it right like it does it does what it does really really well and i've thought of doing like a new a new treatment that's not the same game but uses some of the you know set in the same world or you know, that sort of thing um but again that wouldn't be the wouldn't be the same game at all because I guess one of the things that does happen as well is just in terms of thinking of what you said about Everway, about you know getting the art all updated and looking shinier and, and things like that, just a reprint might be something people go for. Because, for example, Chaosium reprinted a lot of the old RuneQuest 2 stuff. That yeah, that's the shelves. true. Is that, say, pull in art from their supplements or whatever to make a version of our Smagaka that was just really chock full of art and beautiful and, uh, yeah... All right, well that's a great idea. I'll I'll uh, I'll get right on that because yeah, I, there's a I mean honestly there are a lot of people who talk about Everway or sorry Arshmagaka kind of how they talk about Everway like it it showed them uh, how you could add narrative to a game that's still that's still crunchy and still about you know magic and adventures or whatever but you're it really brings the characters' personalities to life and really creates a, a, a fantastic campaign arc so. Yeah, maybe there's something there. Because I'm thinking of things like the Twilight 2000 Kickstarter as well, which did Gangbusters. You know, that, that was basically you know a straight-up reprint of an old game, effectively. We could do better than that. I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can. I'm looking forward to it. I've got my wallet ready. <laughs> you're, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're not the <laughs> only one. Yeah, a lot of love for uh, a lot of love for Arsmakica, That's for sure. And uh, you know, a new game you could um, uh, put some extra work in to make it easy for uh new players to get into right so that it was with our that i did my first uh beginner uh sort of starter product with the jumpstart kit um and then i wound up doing that for like magic and uh, pokemon and dual master all sorts of sort of beginner versions dungeons and dragons and but yeah and and uh, you know i still really have fond memories of uh the Broken Covenant of Calabase, which is the a dungeon kind of uh, with a kind of a reverse tower, where instead of the wizard's tower being this you know stone thing thrusting up into the sky, it's a deep well with uh, the rooms on the uh, on the perimeter as you go down into this well, right? And it's like, well, it's actually it's also a, a sort of was showed what Arsmagaka could do in that, hey, this is a dungeon adventure. You're going into these weird ruins and you're encountering weird creatures and getting treasures, but it's it's doing it um, with sort of a style that uh, that wasn't available at the time. So, yeah, I'll have to talk to the uh, John and uh, company at uh, Atlas about that. Sure, good. Guys on the playtest <laughs> list, as soon as you do. <laughs> Even if it's just a free a free cut of paint, uh, we're happy. We'll we'll take it. I remember this thing. You remind me if I got this right. If I remember this right, was there a thing called Storm Rider? Yeah, that was talking about a jump start. Yeah, was that a thing for us, Maggie? Yeah, yeah. I have fond memories of just how how good that was and necessary as well to like hold your hand a little bit, yeah, um, right. but to take you through the steps, take you through the processes. Yep. It was it was a lovely product. You don't see enough of those sort of things. Yeah, that's right. It was, it was really really cool. There was like a, a mystic knight from the sky, the storm rider, whose horse would leave blazing hoof prints. And so it's like, oh, you follow the hoof prints to the next encounter. Right? <laughs> and, and then like when you get to the first place where anyone's going to make skill checks, then there's a little bit on how you make skill checks, right? So you're just learning the game as you go. And I remember, for example, just being really frustrated with RuneQuest where it was hard to... It was hard to get into because the adventures were for higher level characters and there just wasn't much that made it easy for you to introduce new players and get a sense of the world. And so, so in some sense, Stormrider was the adventure that I wish I'd had for RuneQuest. Cool. I was just going to mention, uh, I don't know whether you've seen it, there's a game called View Scream by Raphael Chandler, which is designed, it's exclusively for online play and you're in character for two hours. 
And the, the the general conceit is that you're on a spaceship, so it's something like, I guess, Event Horizon or something of that kind of nature. And you have four different positions, and you can only speak to each other via your screens, and that's why you play it online, so you just get into character. And there's certain, there's kind of call and response things you can do, and you've only got so many responses you can give, and some are good and some are bad, and you have to use them all, and some people will die and some people will make it through. But um, it did a treatment of that as well for, um, it was it was Mages in Towers, so it was a bit kind of like you're all you've all got your seeing orbs or you know your thing yeah. cut, like you yeah. know, you, you kind of Saruman and Saruman type thing. So just thinking for like the Arch Magic and that kind of stuff, if you wanted to do something with it, is you know there's potentially space for doing something to the, make it fit into online play. So yeah. if everybody was a mage or whatever, they could be separated by continents or whatever, but they're yeah. in their own wizard towers and they yeah. communicate by their seeing orbs or something. So I think technology then gives you an opportunity to look at other bits of game design you can do that perhaps weren't available when you're on using that in 1995 or whatever. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, Wizards was a real early adopter on the internet. And they, they were in technology mm-hmm. in general, like they had pagers when other people didn't. They had a 800 number you could call to ask questions about Talislanta or whatever, right? Very customer oriented. And that's <laughs> how they connected with uh, Richard Garfield was that his friend Mike Davis was looking for a publisher for Robo Rally. And they were on the East Coast, but they found Wizards of the Coast in Seattle. And um, while they were working on uh, getting enough money to publish Robo Rally, Peter asked Richard, hey, if you could come up with a game that two people can play in 20 minutes with materials that they could carry in their pocket, that would be really great for, like, players waiting to get into a D&D session at a convention. And so Richard came back with that and more, right? And that's where magic came from. So that early technology connection at Wizards was really strong. So I forgot that I wrote about that in the uh, in Every Way Itself. But, yeah, that was a... a the nineties were a kind of a watershed decade for going online. Yeah, it's funny. We were speaking to Lee Prosperi, the line developer for Earthdawn back in the day, and trying to work out, you know, what happened to Earthdawn and why did it go the way it did. And it's basically because he had to fit everybody's computers. Like he was the IT guy at Fasa as well. I was like, he just had a different job to do though. It wasn't nothing to do with they didn't like the line or anything. It's just, you know, we've got computers now, we need someone to fix them and set up the internet and thing. Yeah, and then who knew like things like you know, the Facebook games like Farmville or whatever, like who, who could imagine that those things <laughs> pop up? You know, there was a, you know, the free game RuneScape that kids played was one of the first free-to-play games and just sort of blew the doors open. Hmm. Right? Really weird. Unpredictable. Yeah. Most, most of the, the guys and our kids these days are just like, oh, they spend their pocket money and he's getting a new hat for their character in a particular <laughs> game, be it Fortnite or Minecraft or whatever. Like, there's just... Yeah. As soon as they have any money, they want to spend it on imaginary things. Yeah. I mean, I like people playing, spending money on games. Right? <laughs> I spend a lot of money on imaginary things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I spend is on something imaginary, normally written by you. <laughs> <laughs> well, more power to you. Yeah. When, when I teach my introductory to game design class, one of the things I say is game designers are always looking for a new way to make money. Right, a new way to have people spend money on games, and so free-to-play games was one of the new big ways. Downloadable content, yeah, trading card games. It's a, yeah. So you mentioned teaching a class, though. Is that something else? That that's probably like another sign that things are mainstreaming and that you can yeah, do. Yeah, that's that's right. So the University of Washington in Seattle, where I live, um, has a three-course uh, certificate program. Um, so there are three gaming professionals, me and two other guys, that each uh, teach a course fall, winter, and spring. Uh, and then, and my job is uh, it's kind of the fun one, introduction to game design. So it covers all the basics and has the uh, students work on uh, sort of a class project, concepting up a game. And yeah, then there's um, uh, Digipan is a school here in the also in the Seattle area that's all about uh, game design and the. I guess the University of Washington has a, a a digital sports like recruiting students to I don't know compete online in League of Legends and that sort of thing. So yeah. yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing how mainstream games have become. Yeah, I saw a bit of a documentary on that the other night actually, and they had like a team of young lads 
I mean, you know, once they get to 19, they've, they've passed it because the reaction times have slowed down by 10 hundredths <laughs> of a second or whatever. But they had like, you know, sports nutritionists and, you know, physiotherapists. And yep. it was like, it was like it was, I don't know, a soccer team or a rugby team or something. It was, it was bizarre, but yeah. yeah. Hard to believe. I mean, you know, we always dreamed when I was, you know, in line ramp and doing our Spagaka, we dreamed of the future when people would play role playing games. Or, or games anyway, like, and and we just had no idea what those games would look like, obviously. But in some ways, it's come true. Like, people play, so many people play games now, and good games, right? You know, like, Trivial Pursuit is hardly a game. It's a trivia contest. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, Settlers of Catan, that's a game. Yeah, I still get angry with people that, Say Monopoly when I say board games. I just, uh, uh, yeah, that's right. Just see, just see a red rag. Can't help myself. <laughs> so, um, talking of looking forward, then is uh, is there anything else that you're working on for the future? I know you've obviously got this Kickstarter taking up a lot of your time, but have you got any plans yeah. for future products? Big thing I'm working on uh, now is uh, something for Glorantha that uh, Chaosium announced recently. So I've been a big fan of the Glorantha setting ever since I was a teenager. It was the first published setting that I cared anything about. Um, and this is, um, Glorantha is this sprawling fantasy world that um, was written up by kind of a, a modern psychedelic shaman trickster figure, Greg Stafford, who uh, also an anthropology student, I guess, who created this world where every uh, every spiritual tradition has its own story of what the universe means, and they're all contradictory. And, and each one of them can be proved by its own adherence as correct or whatever. And so, well, I've been a big fan of that since whenever. And back in, I guess, 2019, I went to the cast of people at Gen Con and said, what I want to do is a supplement for Glorantha where discuss different sort of important and and secondary, you know, sort of pedestrian and mystical sites that, that are part of the game world already. And for each one, I provide three different versions of what the characters find there when they go there. So the wasp's nest is this, you know, weird place with giant wasp ridden by um, tiny uh, human-like riders. Um, and but they're very mysterious and, and whatever. And so I have three versions of what could be there. And what's exciting about Glorantha is that it has a huge amount of backstory about, you know, who these gods are and what the history is and the philosophies and the rituals and, you know, everything going back to like literally before time, you know, when the gods battled before time had been invented in order to keep everything straight and that's wonderful, but my experience had been as a player was, uh, or as a game master in particular, that then it's it's hard to know what I can invent and what I can't, and and I sometimes felt like I couldn't get out from under the canon. And so what this version does is, you can buy this book, but you can't, you literally can't play it to to spec or buy the book because the book itself is self-contradictory. Yeah. And so you have to choose what the city of Wilmskirk is going to be, what the city of Dragon's Eye is going to be. Like you, you, you can't, you, yeah. And, and then that, um, they've been trying to emphasize the idea that your Glorantha may vary. Like you can do your own thing. And this is the first product that just takes that idea to 11 and says, your Glorantha must vary. You cannot possibly do it by the book because the book uh, has more than one answer for every question that you ask. And so that's just been a dream project for me to go back to this setting that I have loved since whenever and to be able to uh, pull in all the stuff. Uh, you know, I get to ask all sorts of geeky questions of the guys behind the the game, you know, like all my fiddly little questions about what's going on in the world. And then I get to invent stuff uh, with sort sort of without regard to what those answers necessarily are, and that so that's just been amazing. And if that goes well, I would love to do more stuff for them, either along those lines or other uh, other Glorantha stuff. And then I've been doing a lot of 
Uh, I've been doing a lot of science communication for kids, right? Like I, back in 2015, I self-published Grandmother Fish, the first book to teach evolution to preschoolers. And then the artists who worked with me, we put together the game Clades and uh, Clades Prehistoric, which is an animal matching game that's about evolutionary relationships among animals. And last year I worked with a, a couple of crow experts in Seattle to do Crow Scientist, which is a free science app that teaches kids how to observe crows the way a scientist does. And so now I've got sort of two parallel tracks as the geeky game designer, but also the science communicator for kids. I've got another science game coming up pretty soon that I can't talk about yet. And so the the artist who I have been working with, she and I have ideas for, um, you know, another book that we can work on. And so it's, it's not clear. I've got more projects lined up than I can than I'll ever do uh, in my limited time left on this earth. And so I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing next, but the Glorantha project is the one that I have firmly underway, contract signed, everything like that. And yeah, that's, that's going to be amazing. If I could go back in time to my 17 year old self and say, you know, in the future, you're going to be, no, forget about being the lead designer on third edition of Dungeons and Dragons you're going to be writing the first Glorantha book that blows the top open and shows everyone how to make <laughs> up crap for their own campaign and whatever. And be pretty exciting. Yeah, you're definitely excited about it. So you got me excited there. <laughs> you know, it's also, it's, it's stat free so that you can use that for RuneQuest. You can use it for Quest World, which is the free form approach to playing in Glorantha. You can use it for 13th Age Glorantha, which is what, uh, what Rob Hainsoe and I worked on. Uh, you know, that's another project that, you know, another dream project that my 17 year old self would be gobsmacked to hear about. And you, you can just use it for any campaign, that any fantasy campaign that you, you want to pull ideas from into your uh, into your campaign is all, all there. That's, yeah, it sounds ideal for me. I think one of the problems some Glorantha files there are, there's some ardent ones who want to nail down every detail. Yes. And and for me, my Glorantha, where it varies, is that what I liked about RuneQuest originally was that there was lots of questions. Yes. And who, who were these people and who left this thing and what was Rob Cradle? And the, that that was more interesting than trying to, you know, nail down everything. So hearing you, you're producing something like that really uh, is food for the soul. Good. As well as we played a game uh, not too long ago with uh, Guy Milner, a friend of ours who runs the Burnout Running blog, and uh, that was 30th Eggland, and we had the Wasp Riders in it. So it's, it's good to hear that they're going to feature in some way. Nice, yeah. How cool is that, right? <laughs> I mean, like, I used to play a board game called Dragon Pass, right, that had, you know, hundreds of little cardboard chits that were representing all these uh, armies or whatever, and, and you could send a, an army to the Wasp Riders and get them to... Uh, uh, join your army and, and and fight in the battle with you. And now, now I get to write about what they what they actually do. You know that um, in the real world, wasps are this weird, twisted version of uh, familial care, paternal care, where the young grubs produce a liquid with electrolytes in it that the adults drink. So rather than the adults coughing up some food for the young, like pigeons do or even cockroaches do or whatever, this is the reverse where the grubs are creating the stuff that the adults feed on. It's like, that's twisted. That's, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I love wasps. They're wow, so weird. <laughs> I like the way you, you casually threw in before as well that you know you got a couple of cracks, but it's like your city's got several of them to choose from, so you just picked a couple at random. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that feels regular answer. You got. I, I like to think the two different crow experts have got different opinions that are contradictory as well. That really yeah. fits in nicely. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it's been glorious to speak to you, Jonathan. I appreciate we're now uh, slightly over an hour, so. Uh, we best let you get on, but uh, thanks very much for coming on again. And uh, obviously, for our listeners, I'll uh, I'll stick on all the stuff about the other way Kickstarter in the show notes and stuff. I want to explicitly plug uh, Over the Edge once because that's the role playing game that came out in 2019 since I was last uh, on here, and 
Uh, I know we mentioned it a little bit, but it's another one of those games from the 90s that has a glorious uh, new life as a a new role-playing game. And it's another one where game designers were inspired by the original Over the Edge to do something more freeform. And now I've learned from their games and so I've gone back and used a lot of their ideas to make over the over the edge more kind of more what it should have been in the first place. And so that's another uh, another fine Atlas Games product that I want to plug. Sure, it's, and it's got that nice full color treatment as well to it now as well. It looks a lot prettier. Marvelous. Cool. Thanks very much, Jonathan. And we shall see you in hopefully not a couple of years, maybe a bit sooner. Than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'll see you on Twitter for sure. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jonathan. Congratulations on Everway, mate. I get the sense this is very much a, a personal one that you, you really, really wanted to see come back out of the gate. So, you know, congratulations on everything Everway. It's about time. Thank you. Thank you.